Okay, so tonight we have a very special guest that I know personally. Um, this is Raquel Falk. Uh, I met her. She's a met, was a, a graduate at Notre Dame in 2013 and immediately moved into the St. Peter Catholic, Claver Catholic Worker Community here in South or over in South Bend. Um, I met her at Our Lady of the Road, which is a drop-in center that serves the homeless. Um, she always has a very joyful demeanor, a very beautiful voice that she brings to people that uh, often can't hear very beautiful voice. So the personal uh, goodness. Um, she now works for Iron Sharpens Iron. And um, what that is is a, a mentoring program that goes and helps uh, kids in kind of a uh, special needs areas and mentors the kids and makes them kind of stand out as individuals, gives them the tools they need to uh, excel, but also to share that with the people around them. So a lot of community she's been a part of. Um, so today's talk is going is titled Community, You Can't Do It Alone, um, and I'm going to turn the mic over to Raquel. Thank you. And let's give her a hand. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. How's my sound? Can you hear me? Great. Thanks, Kevin, for that introduction. That was really kind. Um, like Kevin said, my name's Raquel. I, I'm from the suburbs of Chicago, but I moved here to South Bend to go to school in 2009. And after I graduated from Notre Dame with a degree in uh, the program of liberal studies and a theology minor, I joined the local Catholic worker community. And tonight, um, we're going to talk a little bit about community, but my perspective comes from kind of a specific use of that word, which is intentional Christian community. Can you raise your hand if you've ever heard of those three words together, intentional Christian community? Great. Awesome. So one of my mentors, um, he has over 40 years of intentional Christian community experience, and he, he's part of a community in Evanston, Illinois, called the Reba Place Fellowship. His name's David Jansen. He literally wrote the book on intentional Christian community, and this is it. It's the Intentional Christian Community Handbook. Um, the Gospel really is the book on intentional Christian community, but this is the runner-up. Uh, it's very practical and helpful. And his working definition is of intentional Christian community is a group of people who are deliberately sharing life with one another to follow Jesus. And so the more aspects of life that that group of people shares together the more intentional the community is. So this is different than living in a dorm or finding yourself with housemates. While that is sharing life, it's different in that you intentionally come together as a group of people and you say, I'm going to live with you, 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 and you specifically, and we're going to share life in order to help each other follow Jesus. So it's beyond just kind of practically sharing the same space, um, if that makes sense. So that's what I'm talking about today. Um, my experience of being in intentional Christian community is pretty much entirely within the context of the Catholic worker movement. So I'll paint a little picture of the Catholic worker houses here in South Bend. How many of you have been to the St. Peter Claver Catholic worker? Got a handful. Okay. So if you go into downtown South Bend, just south of that on South St. Joseph Street, there are two houses. They've been there for about 10 years, a little over 10 years, and there's a men's house and a women's house. And in those houses, you'll find a community of people 
who are a mixture of people who've decided to live there full-time as volunteer staff members, and also guests who were usually, in most cases, experiencing homelessness. Some come from a more working poor kind of background where they perhaps weren't homeless, but it was an unstable, unstable situation. So those people all live together in these two houses, and we eat dinner together every night, um, and then we follow that by evening prayer. And another aspect of our shared work is to run Our Lady of the Road Drop-In Center. Who's been there? Anybody? A little more? Great. So that's open Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning to serve breakfast and give laundry and showers to people who are living on the street. So that's the intentional Christian community context that I am coming from. And let's rewind a little bit, though, because I knew sort of that I had this longing for community before I even knew what the Catholic worker was or before I knew what intentional Christian community was in general. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, I was part of a youth military program called the Naval Sea Cadet Corps, and it was pretty cool. We got to wear uniforms, and it was kind of like scouting, but it was through the military. And it was in that program that I realized that I loved community. I loved getting together with other people, having a shared mission. We're all there on purpose to do this thing, and I especially loved, I especially loved it when it was kind of risky or like asked a lot of us. So I was valuing these, um, these, these values of, of self-sacrifice and courage. And I thought, this is cool. This is what I want to do because in my college prep high school from the suburbs in Chicago, I saw kind of the typical route. Again, this is very, come from a very sheltered background. So in my perspective, the typical route of the American life was that you go through high school, you go to college, you get a good job, you move to the suburbs and you get this house that's really, really big and you don't really need that much room your fam with your family because your family's not actually that big. And you work a lot. You're at, you're at home like very little, but you're at work a lot. And that looked really boring to me. So I thought, I'm going to join the military to have a not boring life because that was my main priority as a high schooler and a middle schooler. Um, I ended up at Notre Dame and thought I would do OCS and join the military after college. But a friend at the end of my freshman year invited me to Our Lady of the Road to wash dishes. And I was pretty intrigued. I'd never seen anything like it. My experience with homelessness was literally driving through neighborhoods where all of a sudden there were like a lot of churches and a lot of cash for golds and like my parents locking the door. That was it. Maybe on Christmas we would like give food to homeless people, but it wasn't like a part of my life. But here I was sitting at a table, much like the tables you're at right now, just having coffee with people who didn't have a house. So that was crazy and mind-blowing for me. And so I, I joined this class at Notre Dame in the theology department called Catholic Radicalism. And it was taught by Michael Baxter, who is a co-founder of the Catholic Worker Community in South Bend. So I'm taking this class, and Mike Baxter um, portrayed the Catholic Worker Movement as this really radical, rigorous counterculture um, that I had been seeking in my desire to join the military. And it was really clear, he described Dorothy Day and Peter Morin, the co-founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, and he showed them as these people who took Jesus really seriously and tried to follow him as closely as possible without making very many excuses for why they couldn't. Um, and I'd never seen anything like this before from people who weren't priests or nuns. Like here were just normal people who said, oh, Jesus said to live with the poor, so we're just going to do it. 
and invite them into our house. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. And the people I met at the Catholic Worker were just really joyful and, again, lived this radical, rigorous, countercultural life. And I just really wanted more of it. So that's why I joined the Catholic Worker. And I say all that kind of as a preamble to reading the postscript from Dorothy Day's The Long Loneliness. How many of you have had a chance to read this book? I highly recommend it. It's good Lenten reading, um, as you can tell by the title, The Long Loneliness. Um, And we'll see kind of what Dorothy means by that. So Dorothy and Peter started the Catholic Worker Movement in 1933, living with the poor, doing the works of mercy, resisting war, and just trying to follow the gospel as closely as possible. And this is the uh, autobiography of Dorothy Day. And this is what she writes in the postscript about community. The most significant thing about the Catholic worker is poverty, some say. The most significant thing is community, others say. We are not alone anymore. But the final word is love. At times it has been, in the words of Father Zosima, from the brothers Karamazov, a harsh and dreadful thing, and our very faith in love has been tried through fire. We cannot love God unless we love each other, and to love we must know each other. We know him in the breaking of the bread, and we know each other in the breaking of bread, and we are not alone anymore. Heaven is a banquet, and life is a banquet, too, even with a crust, where there is companionship. We have all known the long loneliness, and we have learned that the only solution is love, and that love comes with community. It all happened while we sat there talking, and it is still going on. So that's the postscript to Dorothy's book, and I start with that because she highlights that following the gospel, following Jesus, is impossible without community. Um, And I really think, I'm of the opinion, that Christians should consider living in community. So I'm going to give you five reasons tonight why I think it's important for Christians to live in community. And of course, that's interpreted in a wide variety of ways. Priests and nuns live in community. Married people and families are in community. But for those of us who are lay people and single, community is not some far-off ideal. It can actually happen. So I'm going to tell you five reasons why I think it's a good idea with some examples from my experience. So the first reason is that um, we should live in community as Christians because God is community. So I've got here, I know it's super small, but this is the Holy Trinity icon. Has anyone seen this icon before? It's three, they kind of look like angels, but it's a depiction by um, a Russian icon writer of God. So this is a depiction of God, and he takes this image from Genesis 18, where we read, Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So you can see, if you could see this up close, um, which maybe I'll pass it around after I'm done holding it, you can see that God the Holy Spirit is on this side. That's God the Son. That's God the Father. And God the Holy Spirit's hand is in a gesture of welcome. And I think that shows that the viewer is being invited outside of him or herself and into community with God at this, like, eternal banquet love feast, which is pretty cool. Like, that's what God is doing to us all the time, even in this moment. 
So living in community with other people has allowed this to go from some abstract theological reality or just like a pretty icon to something very concrete that I experienced. So I'll hand this to you if you'd like to just pass it around. And I'll give you an example of a way in which that invitation to joining the community with God and kind of coming outside of myself came to be. I was a summer volunteer at the Catholic Worker, which is the way a lot of people end up joining staff. They'll just come for a month or two over the summer, perhaps uh, on a college break. And I had just endured a pretty hard breakup. I was dating this guy for two years. He broke up with me. Not only did he break up with me, but we were both summer volunteers at the Catholic Worker the week after he broke up with me. So as you can imagine, that was pretty rough. And I kind of just wanted to spend the whole summer like crying in my bed. But also, I'm very dutiful. You know, I wanted to join the military. Duty is important to me. So I thought, like, I'm here to help people. But I really just want to cry all the time. So what I'll do is I'll find some private places in the house so that I can just cry and, like, get it out of my system and then, like, go do dishes and clean stuff because that's why I'm here. So I was crying in the bathroom once, you know, my ritual, just like letting it all out. And I heard a knock on the door. And I thought, dang it, like busted, whatever. All right. And I thought this, this person is going to either ask me a ton of questions about why I'm crying and I don't want to talk about it because I don't know any of these people. Or the second thing that they could do is be really upset with me because I'm hogging the bathroom because I lived in a house with two bathrooms and like 12 women. So, you know, it's not going to go well. But I go to the door, you know, my face is like ridiculous, and I open it, and it's one of our guests at the worker. She had lived there for about three years at that point. And she just opened her arms and gave me a big hug. And I was like, oh, this feels kind of nice. It's not what I was expecting. And I managed to kind of squeak out like a little thank you for hugging me. And she just kept hugging me, and she said, this is what we do. That's it. And so that was my first real-life education in what community is for. You don't live with people because you can get more stuff done, because the amount of work that you can do together multiplies. You live in community because we need each other to reconnect and to heal each other, to invite each other to come and sit down and to accept the love that God is offering to us in every moment. Um, so I experienced that quite sacramentally in that moment, and I, I won't forget it. So number one. Live in community because God is community. Number two, I think Christians should live in community because following Jesus is really hard. And as the, the talk title, subtitle says, you can't do it alone. And Jesus, um, I'm sure you'll agree, asks us to do some really demanding stuff um, every day, all the time. And I would argue that it's actually impossible to do it by yourself. For example, Jesus asks us to not only give to the poor, but... By becoming man through the incarnation, he modeled for us being with the poor and said, do this, be with the poor in the way that I emptied myself and did it. Okay, cool. So we should do that, but it's really hard to do that, especially living with people who have experienced mental illness or who have ongoing mental illness, who have experienced a lot of trauma in life. So do, trying to do that by yourself can, can pretty easily lead to burnout. Um, in an early experience, after I had formally joined the staff, so I'm no longer a college student, one of our guests just couldn't keep a roommate. Her mental illness, and she had experienced a lot of trauma in her life, made her very demanding 
and very self-preserving and uncompromising, and she didn't trust anybody. In other words, she was super rude <laughs> to everybody. And so that left an empty bed in her room, and guest after guest we would invite in to attempt to room with this woman, but they decided that like it wasn't even worth it to have a bed to live with this woman. That's how difficult she was. And the empty bed was really weighing on me um, because I thought, you know, maybe I need to be roommates with this guest and give my bed up. I had this awesome roommate. She was also a graduate of Notre Dame, and we had all these things in common, and she was, like, really easy to live with. And I thought, but I don't, I don't need the bed. Like, I, sh I should just go room with this person and then give someone else my awesome roommate. But that thought of doing that was incredibly burdensome. And I thought that it would probably drive me insane, but that probably meant that God wanted me to do it, right? Because, like, doing the hardest thing is the holiest thing. That's what I thought <laughs> as a 22-year-old. Um, so I'm just finding myself totally stressed out and burdened by this, and I ended up on the floor of one of my fellow staff members' rooms, and, and I, I was spent, overcome with stress and anxiety, and I told her what I had been thinking, and I asked for her advice. And she had two more years of living in the women's house, under her belt than I did. So she listened, like, really compassionately and heard me out and then answered with some pretty incredible wisdom. She said, we're all called to voluntary poverty, but we're never called to despair. And so that really stuck with me. And I realized that if I had tried to minister to that woman by myself, um, kind of relying on myself and just what's the word, like just using my grit to like power through it, it wouldn't have worked. I would have burnt out, and that wouldn't have been charitable to myself. And so I probably would have given up and, and moved out had I decided to live with this woman. But my community mate listened to me and shared this wisdom and really saved me from falling victim to an incredible moment of pride and self-reliance. Um, so following Jesus is hard, and we need other people to help us do that. <laughs> Jesus also asks us to bless those who curse us and pray for those who persecute us. So at the Catholic Worker, almost quarterly, it seemed like a laptop would go missing, some cash that someone accidentally left out would be pilfered, people who came for dinner would criticize the cooking and say, this is terrible, why are you eating so much kale, it's disgusting, or they might like straight up just spit on you if they're drunk and you're like you can't be drunk here and then you just get spit on and so after that happening over and over it can have this kind of taxing effect but of course people who live on the street have very hard lives and that can have a hardening effect on them too so here we are kind of trying to meet one another where we're at but I really needed my community mates in those moments especially to remind me who I was in God's sight in the face of whatever insult or whatever was happening. Um, and they also helped me to see the light of Christ in every person, even when brokenness distorted that light a lot. So that was a really important, important lesson I learned in community. Um, and then just on a practical note, because following Jesus is hard, uh, you need one, one thing that Jesus asks us to do is invite people into our lives that can't repay us, or that might not otherwise be welcome at our table. But I know that as a single woman, if I was living by myself, I couldn't go around just asking anybody to come into my house and have dinner. So one great gift of living at the Catholic Worker and living in community with other people who valued this 
was that I actually could do that. It was very liberating. Um, if I met someone, I could say, you can come over for dinner at this time. And I knew that I would have community mates there who would be able to handle any sort of situation through kind of lovingly de-escalating them. And it allowed me to come into contact with people who otherwise I might not have just on my own. And so the last thing I'll say about the difficulty of following Jesus and how other people can help with this um, has to do with nonviolence. So it's really hard to act nonviolently and love your neighbor when the state does violence in our names. So the Catholic worker has a long history of resisting war, and one way they do that is through resisting paying income taxes. Because I'm not sure how many of you know this, but about 50% of the budget, the, the federal budget, goes to war. So that's split up into lots of different, there's Department of Defense, Department of Energy, but the numbers come in consistently every year. It's about 50%. And so one thing that Dorothy Day did, however unpopularly, was condemn nuclear weapons. She stood with the church on that. And especially during the Cold War, that was a hard stance to take. Um, there was a lot of propaganda. But one way that she resisted was not paying income taxes. Well, if you want to do that and not get thrown in jail, you have to not qualify to pay income taxes. The only way to do that is to live below the taxable income. So what she did through her voluntary poverty was live below the taxable income so that she didn't have to pay income taxes and therefore not have to pay for nuclear weapons. Um, that's almost impossible to do by yourself because the taxable income is pretty low. It's the federal poverty line. Of course, it goes up when you have more children. Um, so that's one argument for having lots of kids. Stay below the taxable income. Um, but also, if you live in community, it's, it's not as hard. So that, that's a really cool way, I think, that Dorothy integrated both of these mandates from the gospel um, to live with the poor, practice voluntary poverty, and practice nonviolence by not paying for war. And those things were made possible through community. So God is community, and following Jesus is hard, so we need help. Okay, the third one's more fun. More people that you live with means more fun. Um, I'm an extrovert, like kind of extremely, so maybe this doesn't sound fun to you. But I have stories about introverts later, so just wait if you're an introvert. Um, but at the Catholic Worker, we had one big dinner every night for both houses, and we also had just one house between the men and the women. The men had their house, the women had their house, to clean. So the amount of work, it's just like one or two people make dinner every night. All 25 of us are not cooking ourselves separate dinners. Same with cleaning the house. We don't have 25 different houses to clean. It's just the one. So because we kind of cut back on the amount of work, we had a lot more leisure. So at the Catholic Worker, you'll often find people after dinner kind of hanging out after dinner. Because we're in South Bend, there's a lot of talking about theology, just spontaneous theological discussion will happen. Um, in the fall, there's lots of bonfires behind the women's house in our bonfire pit. Or in the summertime, you'll find people on the porch, sitting, chatting, maybe getting a haircut. And as Dorothy said in that postscript from her autobiography, um, she said, we were just sitting around talking. And that's how, how all of this happened. And I find myself living in community doing a lot of that, just sitting and talking. And sometimes these spontaneous moments are the, the memories that I really cherish the most. And so it's not just like fun to sit around and talk. It is for me, again, because I'm an extrovert. 
but it's also a way to, to follow Jesus' example. Jesus was just with people a lot, and we see that in the Gospels. He was just around tables. He was just at the well. He was just at the temple, and he was with people. And, of course, love and being present is a kind of work. It's not just leisure, but it's best when we do it mindfully without rushing around, and I thought community really facilitated that. We need to create space in our lives to respond to others in love. Otherwise, we'll fall into the trap, and I do this every day, of accepting the devil's attempts at distracting us with the notion that we're too busy for everyone and everything. And I think one roadblock that we face uniquely as young adults is to join in the rat race or to become workaholics simply because it's culturally expected that we do that, especially here in the United States. And community helps us to resist the lie that we are what we do. Um, as one of my community mates told me early on, St. Catherine of Siena banished doubts, demonic visions, and taunting voices with one simple thing, laughter. But in order to laugh, we have to put down our work and take a deep breath and just be with one another. So that's something I really experienced in community. One little note about fun at the Catholic Worker here in South Bend, our leisure has been getting really sophisticated over the years, and we've been starting to put on musicals. Um, we practice around the piano after dinner, singing the songs, and then eventually we invite guests in who perhaps had never been on stage before in their lives. And the cool thing about musical theater, how many thespians out there, musical theater? Yes, Kevin. Kevin has featured in some of our shows. Everybody's gifts, even Kevin Mankowski's gifts, are needed in a theatrical production, if you can believe it. No, he's excellent. He made this amazing well that looked very realistic. Um, he's a carpenter. So anyway, whether it's stage crew, makeup, passing out chili at intermission, um, musicals have been an amazing way for a bunch of diverse gifts to come together and create beauty. So we've done Les Miserables, Fiddler on the Roof, Man of La Mancha, and we hope to keep producing shows. Um, Carolyn has also been in our pit orchestra, which is pretty fun. And I think at our best moments, these communal creative endeavors bring out a lot of laughter and joy in our lives. All right. So God is community. It's hard to follow Jesus. Um, so we need each other. And it's more fun to live with other people. Okay, the fourth thing. Living in community is really good for the planet. How many of you have had a chance to read Laudato Si? Uh -huh. Nice. It's really excellent. And at one point in the encyclical, Pope Francis says this. Ecological culture cannot be reduced to a series of urgent and partial responses to the immediate problems of pollution, environmental decay, and the depletion of natural resources. There needs to be a distinctive way of looking at things, a way of thinking, a lifestyle, and a spirituality, which together generate resistance to the assault of the technocratic paradigm. To seek only a technical remedy to an environmental problem which comes up is to separate what is in reality interconnected and to mask the true and deepest problems of the global system. In other words, our inability to love the earth is mirrored in our inability to love one another and vice versa. The destruction we see, human on human violence and human on earth violence, all comes from the same failure to love. 
And so without communities where the gospel paradigm of loving our neighbors as ourselves, which includes the earth, um, without those communities, we won't see lasting solutions to our environmental problems because the fundamental problem, the failure to love, will not have changed. So I learn how to honor the person, when I learn how to honor the person next to me who annoys me, that's when I also learn how to honor the non-human gifts that God gives us in creation and vice versa. So living sustainably is simply living in intentional community with all of creation, not just humans. So I thought that was pretty cool and really liked that from Laudato Si. Um, a little bit more practically, at the Peter Claver Catholic Worker, I got a chance to learn about the tradition of Catholic worker farms and kind of the Catholic agrarian movement, which was more of a thing in like the 30s and 40s, but I think is starting to get stirred up again because people are newly interested in issues of sustainability in the environment. And so I went to a workshop on Catholic agrarianism and came home and said, our whole backyard should be a garden, the whole thing. Like we should just be growing lots of food. And my community said, cool. And of course I couldn't do that by myself, but living in community allowed us to do that. We helped each other out and it's a great gift. We're in our third growing season and it's it's really neat to see what can grow in South Bend, Indiana. Um, also, living in community, obviously, you have fewer appliances, fewer cars, a smaller carbon footprint. So, um, and a big thing for all of us who kind of are not living in community, I'm kind of half in community right now, but I can go into that later. But when you buy food for just yourself, there's a lot of waste. Because if you ever want to like buy things that don't have a shelf life of two years, you're, you're, a lot's going to end up in the compost, hopefully. The compost, right? Not the trash. <laughs> uh, we can talk about composting later, too. But um, anyway, there's far less food waste at the Catholic Worker because there's tons of people to eat the food. So that is a nice thing, and it helps the earth. So the community helped that. All right, the last thing. This is the most important thing. This is why I think Christians should live in community, and it's because we wouldn't learn how to reconcile without it. One of the most demanding things is reconciliation. In our consumerist, throwaway culture, we tend to move on from difficult relationships and situations in search of something just a little easier, a little more accommodating to our needs. But community roots us even if it's just for a year, even if you've just said, I'm going to live with these people for one year, at least for that year, you're rooted and you have to stay put and find some way to persist in forgiveness. Relationships are really messy and inconvenient sometimes, and in community, you can't actually defriend someone who makes it really difficult for you to live your life because they're just going to be at dinner the next day, and you have to figure out a way to, to live with that. And I learned from my experiences and from my mentor, David Jansen, the author of the book on community, that in any community, you have to go in up front with this fourfold understanding of I will sin, I will be forgiven, I will be sinned against, and I will forgive. That's, that's just the, the mindset you need to have. Otherwise, you know, the fact that people are going to hurt you and that you hurt other people will catch you by surprise, which is okay. It caught me by surprise, too. I didn't know that going in. So you can learn it experientially, but it's helpful to know ahead of time. So how does this play out, sometimes one-on-one? -on -one? So I'm an external processor to the extreme, 
And for three years, I lived really closely with an introverted internal processor who absolutely needed to be alone and given time to think whenever we had a conversation about something difficult, not about like, what are you going to eat for dinner? So, not everything. Um, so naturally, these two personalities, we had a lot of conflicts. And at first, I took our conflicts really personally. Because without intending to, my exuberant sharing about something and expecting feedback right away on the spot sometimes caused her to shut down and retreat to her room. And this was really hard, especially because I couldn't, for the life of me, understand what I was doing wrong. I was just being myself, right? And there's like nothing wrong with just being yourself until you live in community. And other people, you know, don't respond as well to it. So we made this commitment. We said, we don't know what's going on. I'm being myself. You're being yourself. This is hard. So we said, we're going to address each of our conflicts. And we're not going to do it right away in the, on the spot because, of course, like emotional and I'm hurt and she's hurt and yada, yada. So we're going to wait till the emotions subside and then we're going to come back and kind of analyze what happened. Be like, this is what I needed, and this is what you did, and then this is what happened. And we did that enough that we were finally able to identify our unique brand of personality clashing. And then once we named it, we could see it in action, almost before it happened sometimes. And when it did happen, we wouldn't freak out about it. We just adjusted our behavior, didn't take it personally, and then when possible, accommodated each other's needs. So it seems really simple, like, oh, whatever, no big deal. But that was actually one of the biggest deals of living at the Catholic Worker, living in community. And I'm not married. I've never been married. But I think that's probably pretty good marriage prep, I've heard. And it's just good life, in, life with other people prep. So um, that was amazing. And I've had plenty of experiences just like that with other people. And one of the most satisfying things in life, I think, is just that, is learning how to best love another person. So here's the little Valentine's Day portion of the talk. Um, in community, by the end of my three years of living at the Catholic Worker proper, I could just look at a few of my community mates and know in that moment, kind of based on their body language, maybe one or two things they said, like little lists would pop up in my head of like, okay, Raquel, if you do this, it's going to be really helpful. And if you do this, it's going to be really unhelpful. And there was no way I could intuit those lists of behaviors um, or learn the rules of engagement up front. I just had to learn it through practice. And in the process, I learned a lot about myself. And I really think that's what true intimacy is, to know and to be known, especially those subtle contours of our personalities and the unique needs that we all carry in our hearts. And I really don't think we'll ever see peace in our wider world if we don't commit to practicing this sort of peacemaking in our own homes and in our communities. And I, I think it's up to Christians to lead the way on this because our God asks us explicitly to do this, to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, to work through these things with people who are difficult. So lucky for us, though, the work of reconciliation is super rewarding, and it's probably some of the most rewarding work you can do in this life. Um, so I'll end with a little, um, on that note of reconciliation, with a moment uh, of a big retreat that our community had towards the end of my time on staff there. We really needed kind of a mentor, a guide, to walk us through some heavy emotional stuff that we were carrying. And it was making it really hard for us to communicate with one another. 
So we asked David Jansen, this guy keeps coming up, but he's great, he knows a lot about community. We, we said, can you come and lead a retreat for us? And he said, sure. So we did this at the Hermitage. Anyone ever been out at the Hermitage? It's a great retreat center. And he shared a story about the War of 1812. So we're going to have some trivia here. It was the Battle of Fort Boyer, Bowyer. Any historians, am I saying that right? Boyer, B-O-W-Y-E-R. Anyway, I'll get away with it because nobody knows. Great. So at this particular battle, the Americans ended up surrendering. British won because they were outnumbered. Um, and a lot of people died and were wounded. It was pretty bloody. But the battle was fought in February of 1815. Does anybody know when the Treaty of Ghent was signed, ending the War of 1812? What year? Sorry? 1814. This battle was fought in 1815. So literally, the news that the, that the whole war was done hadn't reached these people yet. A year later, they fought this battle. And they killed each other. And the war was over. So David uses this really sad example from history to say that when Christians fight each other, we're kind of doing what those people at the Battle of Boyer were doing. We've forgotten that the war is over and that Jesus actually already came and life has triumphed over death. So we don't need to fight each other anymore. We're actually invited into that victory through loving one another and resolving conflicts with patience and gentleness. And I think David's wise leadership and witness to radical love allowed for some of the most authentic and compassionate conversation we ever had as a community, just reminding us of that fact of who we are and who we're called to be. And some might argue that, of course, you'd never um, reconcile without community because there wouldn't be anything to reconcile about. You'd be perfectly fine, just like doing you, looking out for number one. But keeping our distance by putting up barriers between ourselves and others helps us avoid conflict, but here's the paradoxical thing. Conflict is an opportunity to get closer. So actually, with every conflict that we work through in gentleness and patience, we grow closer at the end of it to other people. So those who kind of put up walls and say, I'm going to avoid conflict, paradoxically, they're actually further from the people around them. Um, and we've all had seasons of this in our lives when we'd rather retreat instead of go forward um, in truth and in, in courage. So I really think that conflict is a necessary path to becoming one with God, to finding our place at that table, wherever it is, the Holy Trinity table. Um, and I think that intentional Christian communities provide us with places to practice this over and over and over. So those are my five reasons why I think Christians should live in intentional Christian community. Um, and of course, that's expressed in a variety of ways. And now I would just really love to invite you to check out those discussion questions on your table. They're kind of meaty. Um, oh, have we not passed them out yet? Thank you. Okay, so you're going to get some discussion questions. And they ask you to sort of look at maybe experiences of community that you've had. Um, or if you haven't had them, just to give you a chance to imagine what that might be like, what might be some roadblocks to community. And I'm really looking forward to our discussion together. You can respond to some of these things I've said, and um, hopefully we can learn from each other. So thank you so much. OK, Raquel, uh, yeah. thank you for the talk. You're welcome. And your honesty. Um, so we were talking a lot about 
we pretty much focus our whole discussion on what you said about Dorothy Day and living intentionally living below the poverty line. I knew that that um, would get one table at least. And, uh, <laughs> Great. So we kind of took contention with the fact that like, um, like this is not like, like we just didn't feel like it was. I guess we had different opinions, but it's not the ideal way to live life or what's intended for us, like as Christians. And so. Um, I don't know, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. And also, uh, coming from, you know, one of the hardest parts about poverty and like that the people who grow up in poverty are those who like don't know how to have a way to get out of it or don't have a way to get out of it, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, your, uh, I mean this in no like personal way, but your easy roommate was your Notre Dame roommate. Mm -hmm. Your hard roommate was the one who grew up on the streets, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then, you know, if you decided to leave the Catholic worker, you could just go probably back to your parents and you have the human capital and resources to, like, kind of begin this life mm -hmm. of suburbia. You know, it, like, should you choose? Like, but the, then, you know, the other people who grew up on the streets don't necessarily have that option. So mm -hmm. uh, people who grow up below the poverty line, we, we're thinking they probably wouldn't want to join the Catholic worker community as volunteers, right? Nailed I mean, it. So yeah, it's full of rich kids <laughs> who are who are oversatiated. So how does this yeah. work? Yeah, I mean, like, how's mm -hmm. your experience? Like, what's your experience with this? And uh, I don't know. Maybe you could just. I didn't really ask a question, but maybe you could just speak to. Well, you asked. Yeah. yeah, I have a question for you, really quick. What was the ideal? You said it's not the ideal Christian life. Did you guys define that the ideal Christian life at that table? Okay, I just wanted to see if yeah, you guys were like, working with like the, the multiplicity of like callings, like to mm -hmm. where you're meant to serve, right? And poverty yes. can be lived out in different ways. Mm -hmm. But we're all called to poverty. So. We are. I know it's so confusing. And uh, we had like a, a dad speak about spiritual poverty, mm -hmm. you know, as well as like material poverty, like uh, exposing your kids to that in a way that like you know, but not like. Living in material poverty is not the way to bring kids to understand material poverty. Decidedly, at that table, yeah. that's the like voluntarily do not entering raise into kids it. in material poverty. That's like, the opinion. Like, right. uh, like voluntary, like don't like. <laughs> right, right. So wait, wait, I no, no, no. Like, don't like force your kids into material poverty. Don't force your kids into material like, poverty. Like real material poverty, where they don't know, yeah, where they don't have any stability. Okay. We're talking Good. about like real, so let's like talk real, about real poverty. I'm not just saying like... The, like in the Catholic yeah. worker, the different definitions. So that would be good to be clear. So Dorothy Day talks a lot about voluntary poverty versus destitution. It sounds like what you're describing is destitution, which would be a situation in which you wouldn't be providing for your basic needs and you'd be in real danger of going without food or without clothing or without shelter or heat or these or education like these basic human rights and so I would 100% agree with you that to raise children in an environment where you can't guarantee that their basic needs will be met for flourishing would be entirely immoral but I do think that um, we kind of as Catholics especially I think we kind of shrink from that word poverty which is really interesting because if you look back over the last 2,000 years you have beautiful writings starting with the church fathers and then we've got St. Francis and 
we could look into this, but of, of a love for poverty and seeing poverty, obviously interpreted in a lot of different ways, but as the way in which we can truly be dependent on God and not on ourselves. So the way Dorothy Day talked about poverty and lived it out was more, especially when she was talking about families, because she had a child, you know, and so she had those real concerns. The word simplicity would probably be a better synonym for today's age versus voluntary poverty. So when she's talking about that, she's saying, like, we're going to meet our family's basic needs, but we're not going to kind of have a ton extra. And that is such an interesting line, and nobody can come up with a magic number of what that means because it depends on where you live, the cost of living there. It depends on what if you have a child with special needs and they have to be in a certain school district because they can only get the teachers that they actually need in that school. So all of a sudden you like have to live in Granger. How do you live voluntary poverty in Granger? It looks a lot different than South Bend where you can buy a house off the tax sale for $800 and like not have a mortgage, right? So I'm actually living in a house that was bought off the tax sale for $800. Isn't that awesome? So um, you can do that in South Bend with a family, with kids. It's a fine house. But you can't really do that in Granger, you know? So I think it's situational. The incarnation kind of shows us that God enters history and kind of navigates certain historical moments with all of the complexity that they bring and the geography and everything. So... Um, does that answer your question a little bit? I'm not advocating, like, not having enough food for your children or, like, not educating them properly. But, so I guess what's the virtue or good yeah. in, in Dorothy Day choosing this? Okay. Right? What is the good in Dorothy Day choosing this? Um, I think it would be the good that the church sees in poverty, which is having these experiences of literally needing to, to ask God for help with something. Because if we have everything we need all the time, when are we ever going to ask God for help? And I really believe that if we don't have an experience of materially not having what we need, even if it's as simple as, like, our family's just going to have one car versus three, that means sometimes we're going to need to share. So we can't all go to our things at the same time. We're going to have to share this car. Even that little prick of discomfort will turn your eyes upward and make you realize I am not the master of my own destiny. So that amount of prick that you need in your life is different for every single person and is between you and God. Um, and Dorothy Day obviously was attracted to, like, more than a prick. <laughs> she was like, I want to go in. I want, I want to feel this, you know? And, I, and her life was incredibly rich because of it. But um, like I said, things happen in families and in situations that are impoverishing enough in and of themselves, like fill in the blank. Life is difficult. So um, I'm, I'm not, like, advocating specific but I, I do think material poverty is important, but it has to be navigated for each person in his or her own life. Oh, thanks, Sean. <laughs> and your second, was your second question kind of like that? Is it, sorry. I've, okay. Yeah. Dorothy Day used to say, our job as Christians is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So anytime we feel comfortable, 
red flag. Um, so best to stay a little bit uncomfortable at all times. Thank mm -hmm. you again for yeah. your talk. I really liked it. Cool. And I really like how you pointed out at the beginning that there are many ways to live in community. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, you just talked about your experience, which is good to have a concrete example. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, maybe from your experiences, you could talk a little bit about this. Um, maybe more specifically, what you're trying to get at here, and you already have, I think, mm -hmm. is maybe the idea of detachment. So, you know, whatever your station in life, mm -hmm. going to live intentional community, mm -hmm. uh, living an affluent life, everything mm -hmm. in between. Um, somehow, it's, it's a means to an end. The things you have, you know, the things you enjoy, you can afford, et cetera. It helps you and your family, your future generations, but I think we all are aware, even if it's different for everyone, right, in their station in life, mm -hmm. that there are points where the, the item or the object or the service becomes really important in itself and it kind of overtakes. I mean, I can't give a definition here. <laughs> I think it's different for everyone. Yeah. But I, thi I think we all know when that happens for each mm -hmm. of us, that we sit and think about it. And you know, it can become something you just get used to. And I don't know, I mean, maybe that's a more, more of a middle way, more of a way to navigate because otherwise, I mean, this is a culture of extremes, I think, our country. Mm. So it's either we go live in poverty, right, because we're good mm -hmm. Christians, mm -hmm. or, oh, forget it, you know, I'm successful, that means I did well for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody should work hard as I did. Like, that's really extreme. And I think most people mean well, and they want to find a way to live in the world, live mm -hmm. well, um, but also realize that, that's not, this is a means to an end, you know, yeah. we shouldn't let it overtake you. I think, I think perhaps that's what you were trying to get at, and um, maybe Don't let detachment overtake you? Well, no, don't, don't let, like, I think we all know what I mean, various forms of materialism or lifestyles. Oh, I see. You become yeah. too attached to it. And, sure, and whether it it's poverty or luxury. Whatever it is. Yeah. The detachment is, yeah. I think, recognizing what's important in the first values, first important things in your mm -hmm. life, and trying to keep that in mind. And that's very, like, ambiguous, mm -hmm. but maybe that's the virtue, right? Like, it depends on everybody's lifestyle. Yeah. Um, however you define that. I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? Have you experienced this? Does this make any sense? Kind of? Yeah, yeah. I think. Cause, so we don't all have to go, like, I don't know, become St. Francis, you know sure. what I mean? But that's not saying we should ignore these things. So like where, kind of like Sean's question a little bit, like where, where do we draw that line? I mean, yeah, I think you're right to say that we do make an idol out of material things in, on either extreme. If you're really into like, I'm going to live super simply and be poor, then you're making an idol out of like not having money. And on the other side, if you're going to just amass wealth, then you're making an idol of having, like, a mountain of money. Both aren't the point. Like, the point is relationship with Jesus. So I think um, building that infrastructure of relationships with other Christians is probably the primary thing. And then through that community, you can have these conversations in your particular situation okay, I know we're all trying to help each other follow Jesus. Here's where I'm at. What do you guys think? Like, challenge me if you think 
that I'm not living a Christian life. Or if you, if you see things that I'm doing that you're like inspired by, tell me that. And I can tell you how to, you know what I mean? So it's the relationships. And it's, it's not about the stuff. But more often than not, having too much stuff makes it hard to have relationships. That's just the tendency, but it's not the rule. So. Um, my my first question is, do you see, um, like, what's what's your ideal uh, view of a community? Do you see like everybody becoming a Catholic worker mm. uh, resident, or like, what's what's your opinion on that? That's a great question. David Jansen has a great answer to that <laughs> in the Intentional Christian Community Handbook. But no, just that word ideal. Okay. So it's actually Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said this. And he wrote this awesome book called um, Life Together. Has anyone read Life Together? Cool. I really want to read it. I haven't read it yet. But this is from Life Together. Sorry? Oh, I thought someone said something. Okay. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. And so David Jansen goes on to say, unless we let go of our ideal community, we will end up hating the sisters and brothers who inevitably do not live up to our expectations. And so, Bonhoeffer warns, we become the destroyer of that very real community God is already growing up around us. So ideal community needs to be slaughtered on the altar every day. (laughs) And this is my big thing, because I'm an idealist, Mm -hmm. and so I've actually imagined the ideal community like 400 times, and tried to enact it. And in that process, I've steamrolled people in conversation, and I've said, it should be this way, or it should be this way, and we're not being ideal enough. But I've totally missed the point in those moments, because the community is that relationship that I was actively kind of like cutting off. So best to move away from ideals and into what's really in front of you. So when, when you talk about that what's in front of you, yeah. um, how, how do you see like a Christian community, like what's, what's the gel? Like what makes a community a community in, in your mm-hmm. point of view? I think like, for example, my aunt and uncle live in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, Ash knows them. I was like, he's nodding intensely. I was like, oh, yeah, because you know them. I know where they live. Um, and um, they're pretty awesome. They live in their house with just their family. It's just them. It's pretty cool. Um, but then throughout their neighborhood, there are these other families, and they realize that they hold some things in common, namely that they all want to get to heaven, and they all want to follow Jesus in order to do that. So they decided we're going to meet, I think it's once a month, or is it weekly? Do you know? Oh, okay. It must be once a... Right, okay. They do love each other. So it's like 30 people, and or 30 family, 30 people. And they come together once a week, and they share a meal, and they pray, and then they break off. The women have some time to get together, the men have some time to get together, and the children. There's one volunteer from the group that leads the children in some sort of faith-sharing um, catechesis. That's a community you know, and that's what's working for them, and they're holding each other accountable, and they've made this commitment. Um, And then I could tell you about 15 other communities where they all live in the same house, or they all have houses close to each other, or they're all on a farm, or, so it just, the 
the cool thing is like God meets us and fulfills the desires of our heart and kind of like draws us with joy. So if you feel, if anyone feels like drawn by joy to a particular group of people or a particular way of living out discipleship, then like that's something to really pay attention to and perhaps committing to that with those people in some formal way and saying we're deliberately going to do this thing that brings us all joy together, then you've got a community. Um, so typically the average person in the community would be their family or maybe their co-workers at work. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you're in university, you'll be in group projects. Mm-hmm. And so my question is, um, naturally you're going to feel frustrations or irritated by being with these people that otherwise you would not be with. Mm-hmm. And so do you have any techniques or prayer or, mo- or like methods to mm-hmm. like transform that frustration or irritant into more constructive, I want to build community? Yeah, I mean, so my job, like, I work with other Christians. I work for a ministry. It's pretty cool. So I would consider my workplace um, an intentional Christian community of sorts because we're all trying to follow Jesus. But then when you have these work situations or even family situations where you haven't all made that sort of a commitment, so maybe you've said, well, the Lord asks me to practice forgiveness, so I'm going to do this. But your coworker is like, I don't believe in forgiveness. That's not a value of mine, so I'm going to hold this grudge forever. There's really nothing you can do about that um, except love that person, and that's hard. So I would recommend getting a spiritual director, honestly, and, and talking about those really difficult relationships um, and loving them. And love is really transformative and can revolutionize hearts, so keep at it. But um, it can sometimes be a really long road, and perhaps you won't see the results at all in your experience with this person. But that doesn't mean something isn't happening. That doesn't mean grace isn't at work. So that's hard. And you haven't, with that kind of a person, you, you're not in an intentional Christian community. You both haven't agreed to like these fundamental Christian values. So doing your best to love yourself and love that person, whatever that means, Um, kind of like my example, um, the Catholic worker is interesting because I am an intentional Christian community with the staff, but the guests come from all different walks of life. So that roommate, you know, that person who had that room, like she was just going to be the way she was going to be. And I had to figure out how am I going to love myself and love her and make this work over the long haul. But I had a spiritual director, which was helpful. All right, I have two questions, if that's okay. Yeah. Maybe you can put them into one, you know, that would count. Nice. Um, my first one would be, what are ways we can practice uh, poverty, I guess, in, on like a daily basis? Like just little ways we can practice it in our lives so we can be less attached. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second way would be, if we're looking to start up like a young adult community within a parish, like I'm a part of that. And so what would be um, some advice for just starting up a community? where you're trying to reach other people your age, whether it's a Bible study or whether it's just like a group of events and stuff. Like, what are just some ways in cultivating a community? Okay. So I think that to, like, you remember the Trinity icon of God kind of inviting us to the table? So I think accepting the invitation to sort of let go from this idea that we're good, that we, like, have what we need and not come to the table is a way of, like, practicing poverty. And so that 
could look like going to daily mass. You're practicing poverty, like voluntary poverty, when you receive the Eucharist, because you're saying, I need something to be who I was created to be. So daily mass would be one way. And then Dorothy said that if you're not going to daily mass, she was talking to Catholic workers, if you're not going to daily mass, you're hurting the work, because she saw the mass as kind of like the work, and then everything else sort of flowed from that. So Eucharistic encounters. So you have like the Eucharist in the mass, and then allowing that to maybe flow into some sort of a Eucharistic encounter with another person. And I'll just throw it out there. Our Lady of the Road <clears throat> drop-in center is a particularly good place to have a Eucharistic encounter because we um, kind of have a small kitchen, and there might be room for you to jump in and cook, but there might not, in which case you just pull up a chair and sit next to someone and grab a cup of coffee and have a conversation. And um, I think that action of like meeting someone and kind of saying, I need you because we're both humans and we're getting each other, we're getting each other to heaven. So we're going to get to know each other. Paired with kind of like receiving the Eucharist every day can be a really powerful experiment in poverty. Um, and then starting communities. I would say, yeah, just pay attention to joy. What brings you joy? Like Ash, the youth. He loves the youth. So he's like creating intentional community with the youth. <laughs> maybe not right now. Maybe he had a hard day. But on his best days, he loves the youth. Um, maybe for you, you like love the earth. And you think the Pope's encyclical, Laudato Si, was awesome. And you want to create a community of people who make a commitment to like getting out into nature and then like talking about your experiences of God and nature. And you say, once a month, we're going to go to like a county park or a state park or whatever, and we're going to walk around, and we're going to help each other get to Jesus by making time for nature, because that's how we find joy, and that's how we find God. So whatever it is that brings you joy, maybe look for others who might also have that, um, and make some sort of a commitment. I know we can be commitment shy, but um, come on, young adults. We'll rise up, and we'll make commitments to our fellow Christians and, and seek joy together. So, yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Raquel. Thank you.